So it's uh, evening time on a Thursday, and we find Jesus sat with his closest friends, who happen to include those who will betray him in the worst possible way. They are sat at the Passover table. They're reenacting and remembering uh, the salvation of the Israelites from slavery to the nation of Egypt. And Jesus and his friends are not alone in this. All throughout the city, faithful Jews are sat around tables, and they are, they are remembering. It was, in effect, their thanksgiving. They were united as a city, united as a country, united as a nation, as they remembered. Now, they would have started the evening by searching in all corners of the home for, uh, for the leaven that symbolized sin. And then they would have ha- washed their hands in a ritualistic way, and then they would have sat down on the floor ready for this meal. Now, in this meal, they ate roasted lamb, they ate unleavened bread, they ate herbs, and they ate four cups of wine, not all at once, because then it would have been, and not each, but they uh, drank four cups of wine throughout the, the, the meal at specific times. And in this meal, they were recounting the story of the first Passover where God's people in Egypt, um, where they painted fresh lamb's blood on the lintel and the post of the front door, thereby escaping the death of the the firstborn son at the hand of the angel of death. Because the angel saw that blood and passed over that house and spared that particular family. Because the angel of death knew that the law required that without blood, there was no forgiveness of sins, as we read in Hebrews chapter 9. And so they saw that a lamb had already covered that sin, and so the angel moved on. Moving forward now, back to Jesus' time. So throughout the city, as people sat around the Passover tables, remembering the story, there would have been a sense of solemnness and of thoughtfulness because they were remembering. But this meal wasn't just about remembering. It was also about anticipation. It was also about looking forward to a time when the symbolism of the meal would no longer be Required because it would be fulfilled. And this was when the Messiah would come. And little did the citizens of the city know that the one who was going to fulfill this Passover meal was in that city, hidden from their eyes at that very moment, sat in a rented room with his closest friends. He was eating his last Passover supper. There would be no more Passover suppers needed after this one. When I'm in the market for something, I usually search for it on the internet. And after searching for it on the internet, a strange thing happens. That thing that I was looking for on Amazon then appears on my Facebook feed, as if by magic. Because the internet knows. Everyone say the internet knows. The internet knows. It's a bit scary. <laughs> that, was a, that was a note of resignation there. The internet knows. Yeah. <laughs> it knows what I was looking for and it wants me to buy it. So it keeps nudging me on Facebook. Go on. We know you want it. You know you want it. So you should go get it. You deserve it. And if it's something that I really need slash want, hopefully need more than one, but who, who knows, then I might actually buy it. 
And you would, but you would expect then after I've purchased it that that same uh, mechanism that tells the internet that I was looking for it now tells the internet that I've actually bought it. You would think that these adverts on social media for that thing would then stop, but they don't, and they carry on. They still show up even though the adverts no longer are needed because I have the actual thing itself. And so when we look at the meal of Passover, which was an advert for for Jesus' death on the cross, that will be soon out of date. Why would you need an advert or a symbol of the death of the Messiah when you have the death of the Messiah itself? Why would you need a symbol of redemption when you have redemption itself? It no longer needs to show up on your feed. And so this was the Last Supper. Not just Jesus' last supper before his death, though it was that. This was the last Passover supper required. It was the end of an era. It was a watershed moment. There are pink tasks and blue tasks. And pink tasks are jobs which are typically fulfilled by women. And I won't list them because then I get in trouble. But there are pink tasks. And then there are blue tasks, which are typically fulfilled by men. And in my home, blue tasks um, usually involve taking out the rubbish, clearing up after the meal, you know, fixing things. And I'm not the greatest fixer of things. So, but in our home recently, I completed a number of blue tasks um, or blue tasks that had stayed around for way too long, like filling in holes in the wall, like rehanging, you know, the tower rail in the loo in the bathroom. Really manly stuff that after I was done, I felt I've achieved something epic. It made me feel good. Even though I'm not the world's best handyman or Ottawa's best handyman or North Gore's best handyman or six. 560 Prince of Wales, best handyman. Because actually, Wendy is probably a better handyman than I am, if I'm honest. But I did it, and it felt good. Now, now earlier on that day, Jesus had sent his followers into Jerusalem from where they were staying. And they want to know where they should set up for this Passover meal. And Jesus tells them in verse 13 that they are to follow a guy carrying a water jar. Now, in those days, water carrying was a pink task, not a blue task. So this man carrying water, that would have stood out. They would have noticed this. It was like a sign. And what's amazing is that Jesus knew ahead of time that this pink task man would be there. He actually prophesied this. And what this shows us is that Jesus was in full control of what was happening there. And the disciples needed this reminder. Because over the next maybe 24 hours or so, it would look like their entire worlds were falling apart. It would look like nothing made made sense anymore with the trial and the torture and the crucifixion of the one that they love. But Jesus wanted his friends to know that he's in control of these events. And so he shows them that he's in charge, even down to the tiniest detail, like a man carrying water. And verse 16 tells us that Jesus was actually right on the money 
this sky was there, the water was there, this, this, this large room was there prepared, it was ready, it was furnished, it was all there just as he said it would be. Jesus is in control. And sometimes we need that reminder, right? In fact, often we need that reminder. Every day we need that reminder that Jesus, he has got this. Because it looks sometimes like things are falling apart. We will find ourselves in moments in life where life no longer makes sense. We will be filled with fear. We will look at what we see of life and and then we'll look at what we understand of God and we compare them and they don't seem to match up. There seems to be some sort of a gap between them, what we see in life and what we understand of God. And in that moment, some people walk away from Jesus because, because they start to blame him because they think either Jesus isn't as all-powerful as I thought he was or he's not as good as I thought he was because if he was all-powerful and all-good, then this specific thing would not have happened in my life. He, he wouldn't have let it. And so with what was about to happen, seeing their rabbi and their friend and their master and their Messiah hanging on a cross for sure, they would have had the doubts and the questions. If he was really God, then this wouldn't have happened. And I think that's why Jesus gives them this seemingly insignificant little sign of this water jar carrying man that he is in control, that he has this. And so let me encourage you, in the midst of whatever trial you are going through right now, where, where you attempted to maybe doubt you know, the goodness or the power of Jesus, that he has this. You, you may have to walk through the toughest time that you've ever had, but he's there for you. He's going ahead of you. He's making a path for you. He's making that path straight if you choose to trust in him with all your heart and choose not to lean on your own understanding. Because our understanding can be wrong, but God never is. Let me share with you one of the joys of parenting. It's been a long day in the office. I make the long commute home. (laughs) And I get home, I I walk up to the door, and I open it to the smell of supper cooking. That's the first thing. And the second thing, literally the second I walk through the door is... Hey, Daddy, guess what? And then even before I've had a chance to respond, I'm treated to a verbal onslaught of whatever school news from the day is at the top of my, my daughter's mind. And so I usually respond with a cheery, slightly sarcastic, Hello, Daddy, nice to see you. And then they go, Hello, Daddy, nice to see you. So anyway, at school today, and they're straight on to the next thing. And Jesus here is kind of, he's really up to the same games. There isn't any small talk. In verse 18, he cuts straight to the chase with what is foremost on his mind. He says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And there isn't any, hey Peter, how's the fishing going? Or Judas, how are the books looking? Think if your Thanksgiving meal started like this. It's a mic drop moment. 
Now, when we think of Judas, we think of a man with a hooked nose and a permanent snarl on his face and most likely a a unibrow and probably has a scar on his cheek and he's kind of hunched over. In, In other words, we view him like the stereotypical villain. But what is remarkable about verse 19 is that no one imagined that the person who had turned Jesus over was him. No one thought him. No one thought, oh yeah, Judas, he's the one. You know, they weren't all, they weren't pointing at him, right? In fact, they were afraid that it was them. It says they were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Surely you don't mean me. And so in each of the disciples' minds, I can, I can see them replaying a scenario which they could see themselves turning on Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's something which they've wrestled with in their own minds, you know, on the quiet, but now it's out in the open. Jesus has outed them. And so I wonder if you've ever considered leaving Jesus. Have you ever considered going out on your own? Have you ever considered returning to the ways of the world? Have you ever wondered what it would be like if God no longer had a claim on you, if you no longer had to answer to the claims of the Lord, if you were free to do whatever you liked? Well, Jesus knows your heart. Just like he knew that the man with the water pot would be there, just like he knows in verse 12 that, that, one of the, that the betrayer will be one of the 12, one who dips his bread in the bowl with me, so Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows exactly where you are at this morning. And this is the amazing thing. He still invites you to a meal with him. Still he welcomes you into fellowship with him. Still he looks at you with eyes of love. And in the end, it wasn't only Judas who actually betrayed Jesus. They all did. Whether it was due to greed or to weakness or to fear, they all abandoned Jesus. And this is the sign of Jesus' grace, his offer of friendship to people who would, who would betray him. This is the gospel. God breaking bread with those who break his heart. Let's say, say that together. This is the gospel. God breaks bread with those who break his heart. One more time. God breaks bread with those who break his heart. And the good news is that the gospel is the same today as it was then. Nothing's changed. Now, back in Psalm 41 verse 9, we read this. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has, has turned against me. That's, that's what we read in Psalm 41, verse 9. Now, fast forward to John 13, verse 18, which deals with the same events we're looking in Mark 14. Jesus says in uh, John 13 that this, that this prophecy from Psalm 41, that even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Jesus says that this prophecy is filled, fulfilled by Judas. And so we ask the question, right? How could Judas be held responsible for something that Scripture, that Psalm 41 verse 9 said would happen? Because in verse uh, 21 of Mark 14, we read this. The Son of Man will go, just as is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays him. It would be better for that man never to have been born. So here is one of the mysteries of life. And let's see if, if we can get 
that great. On the one hand, God has a plan, and he's working out this plan as the sovereign of the universe. And yet, on the other hand, we are 100% responsible for the choices that we make in life. And so we ask God this, if you plan out every detail of my life, then how can I be held responsible for anything that I choose to do? Have you ever asked this? Has anyone ever asked that? It's something I've asked myself many times. So how, how does God's rule and our free will, how do they meet? And the answer might be found in how we understand God's rule or God's sovereignty. You see, there are people who understand God's rule as overseeing every tiny little detail of our lives, from whom we choose to marry, to whom we choose, to what we choose to eat, to what job we have, to that moment a wasp chooses to land in our Coke can. You know, that it happened because God said that it would. Everything happens in the world because God said that it would. And if this is your understanding of God's rule, then I can understand why it would be hard to understand why God's sovereignty and our free will can exist or how they can intersect. However, if you view God's rule as his freedom to rule however he wants, including letting us have free will, then there's less of a problem. Because that's how it works in our country, right? We have a queen, she's sovereign over us, and yet she's not sat in front of a model of Canada with 37 million little pieces moving every single move that we make, choosing every move for us. And so we can say that God is sovereign, and we can say that God is working out his purposes here on earth. We can say that part of that rule of that sovereignty means that God self-limits so that we can have freedom. And within that space, that's where we make our choices. And within that space, that's where Judas made his choice. You see, we, we have to be careful never to place sin or evil uh, you know, at the feet of God uh, as his responsibility or his fault. Because that would either make him at best highly questionable or at worst evil itself. But... In his sovereign power, can God redeem the evil choices of humanity and bring something fantastically good out of it? The answer is yes, a resounding yes with an exclamation mark. Yes, he can. Think about Joseph, who was sold into slavery, um, leading to the saving of millions of lives. Think about Moses, who was hidden in the rushes, leading to the freeing of the slaves. Thinking about Judas's uh, choice to hand over Jesus, resulting in the cross and our new life in Christ. So God leveraged Judas's betrayal to bring about the greatest good that this world has ever seen. And he knew that this would happen back in Psalm 41, verse 9. God is amazing. Amen? And so don't you think that he can do the same with the dark and sinful parts of your story? That he can redeem them? That he can bring something wonderful out of them? And the answer is, of course he can. He is God. He is sovereign. The message of the gospel is God breaking bread with those who break his heart. Jesus, in inviting into fellowship those whose sin and rebellion sent him to the cross. 
And we see this as Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with his followers, all of whom will abandon him at his hour of need. But this isn't just the Last Supper. This isn't just the end of the Passover. This is also the First Supper. This is also this. This is also the start of something new. Because in verse uh, 22, Jesus takes elements of the old Passover meal, a cup of wine and some unleavened bread, and he creates a new thing out of it. He he removes the Passover and the Exodus at the center of the story, and he places himself there. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. This is now about him. Jesus knew that that they would abandon him, that uh, they would turn on him. He said that when he said, or he knew that when he said, one of you will betray me. And even knowing this, even knowing that those closest to him would turn on him, Jesus reinvents this Passover meal with them in mind. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, we, uh, we read this, this is my body, which is for you. And that included them. And it, it was the cross that allowed Jesus to extend this offer of grace to someone who was absolutely guilty. And so around that table, we find ourselves, you are sat there, I am sat there. Ones who have traded Jesus for greed, who have sold Jesus up the river because of fear. We've all abandoned Jesus. But that's where the gospel starts. We've, we've all abandoned this God who loves us. We, we've, we've all stepped away from him. We've all been ruled by the fear of man rather than the fear of God. We've all looked Jesus in the eye and said, thanks, but no thanks. We've all failed that test. We've all traded Jesus for comfort or security. We've all challenged his claim on our lives and asserted our own self-rule. We've rejected his sovereignty. We've intentionally led lives and made choices that break his heart. We've all lived as though this life was the final reality and hell and heaven are just fictions. We've all heard the whisper of the Holy Spirit whispering to our consciences that the way we're going is not good. We've all heard the voice of God calling us to step forward in faith, and we've chosen to exercise our own free will by going our own way. We all know regret. Regret that things are as they are. Regret that we didn't choose otherwise when we had the opportunity. Regret that we can never go back to that moment when we chose sin and selfishness and chose to reject Jesus and his call to holiness. Our homes and our families and our relationships are littered with the fallout of those choices that we made when we chose to break, when we chose to break God's heart, when we chose helping ourselves rather than holiness, when we chose the fleeting pleasures of sin rather than the cause of Christ. We long to enter into Jesus' presence, but our sin and our shame stand there like a couple of bouncers, They look us up and down, and with an appraising eye and a threatening growl, our sin and shame say, the likes of you, you shouldn't be around Jesus. You're too sinful. But but that's all wrong. 
That's not what we read in the gospel. Our sin and shame are not the things that block us from Jesus' presence. Far from it. Our sin and shame are the entry requirements into Jesus' presence. We aren't able to get in without them. And what is it that, that gets us through that door into the VIP room with Jesus? Simply saying, Lord, I'm tired of doing it my own way. I choose to do it your way. And that's what the Bible calls repentance and faith. But even that picture falls short because we aren't at the door, knocking on the door, hoping Jesus lets us in. Jesus is actually standing outside our door. He's the one who makes the first move and the second move and the third move and the fourth move. And all we have to do is to respond, open the door and let him in. And then Jesus enters into our shame and our sin, and he offers to share a meal with us, his sinless body and blood for sinful you. He was broken so that you might be mended. He was rejected so that you might be restored. And that restoration can happen literally right here, right now. He longs for you to stop lurking in the shadow of your shame and come up to the table and sit with him and eat. Because the gospel is God breaking bread with those who break his heart. That was the gospel then. And that is the gospel now. 